0: A reading from the book of Luke. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who invite him saw this, he said to himself, "If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus, answering, said to him, "Simon, I have something to say to you." And he answered, "Say it, teacher." A certain money lender had two debtors; one owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. She did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may have seen.
1: Good morning, Rice City Church. Good morning. Can I just say something? It is a great opportunity when technology doesn't work to test our faith. Amen. Because we don't need it, right? We don't need it all to go smooth sailing for us to have an encounter with the living God. It's all to facilitate that happening. We don't need that to make it happen. Amen. Amen. Can we just also, I just want to do this because it never happens. I used to be a sound guy back in the day, and people only look at you when things go wrong. Can we just turn our eyes and give a clap to the people in that booth? There's no more, like, uncomfortable reality when something goes wrong to have Hundreds of people turn their face to you. It's not even typically your fault. Anyways, just wanted to do that, honor you guys. Thank you, thank you. We see you when it goes right to. Irreversible decline. Irreversible decline. A lot of things happened in 2020. One of them I won't mention. It's too soon. (laughs) But one thing that happened in 2020 was uh, the faith Christian-based data analytics company called Barna released a study compiling thousands of data points about church attendance from millennial down With church attendance, according to the numbers, we are in the Western church, the Western church is in irreversible decline. I think some of us need to wake up to that reality that this morning, there's something going on here, but we need to remember what's going on out there. Irreversible decline is a fancy word that means numerically, we are heading towards zero people believing in Jesus in the Western church. Are you with me? That is what that means. Irreversible decline. And if you're like me, I'm kind of a solutions-oriented person, so I hear things like that and I think, okay, how do we reverse irreversible decline? Is it reclaiming education in the church? Is it reclaiming the arts? Someone get a vision for that this morning. Is it voting for the right candidate? Is it the right missional strategies? Is it the church engaging in justice and serving the poor once again? Is it a better theology of the kingdom? The church has been tied to dualism for so many years. This belief that whatever happens here in the earthly realm is lesser than, but Jesus' original plan is that heaven would come to this earth. There's a lot to say, there's a lot of gaps, there's a lot we need to work on and think through as the church. And let me just say, when we receive critique as the church, let's be secure, we're not perfect. That's actually a tenant of what we believe. He is perfect, we're not. So we can receive critique and say, yes, we've got a lot to work on. But my question is, with all of the problems we do have, is there a singular solution? Is there a singular solution that if we get it right, all these other problems will come into alignment? How do we reverse irreversible decline? We're continuing in our journey together encountering Jesus in this series today. And I think the way to reverse irreversible decline is actually in our story today. We come to the story of the sinful woman. In your Bibles, in the, in the title of the section, it will call the sinful woman is forgiven or something like that, the sinful woman. Some quick context for our story. Jesus has called his disciples He's been healing the sick, casting out the demonic. He's spoken radical teachings and words that changed global trajectories, like enemy love, like don't judge or condemn others lest you be condemned. He has changed the whole world with his words already. And our story opens with an invitation to Jesus. Now, if you're a church person, an invitation to Jesus is a really good thing. Not always. <laughs> it's, uh, it says in verse 36 one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, if you know anything about the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus, you know that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, were actually Jesus' primary opponents and oppressors, at least in human form. So we begin this story with what seems like an olive branch moment. It's the Pharisee extending hospitality to Jesus. He's invited Jesus into his home. He's offered Jesus his food. He's extending hospitality to him. That's a decent thing. It's not all bad. But what we find in the story is Jesus is actually offended by the heart of his invitation. We're in chapter 7 today of Luke, and at the very beginning of the chapter, we have the story of the Roman centurion, basically a high-ranking Roman officer, and that Roman officer has a servant in his household who is sick, and he goes to Jesus, and he asks him, Jesus, would you come and heal my servant? And Jesus says, okay, where is your house? And the Roman centurion says to him, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, Just say the word and he'll be healed. And if you know the story, Jesus says to him, I have not yet seen faith like this. That's in the same chapter, don't come under my roof. But the Pharisee says, come on in. It's like the Pharisee saying, I am worthy for you to be under my roof. That one's for free, you're welcome. Right as the dinner continues, as it gets going, Jesus confronts the heart of the invitation. Yes, you invited me to dinner. Yes, I've entered into your house, but you gave me no water for my feet, you gave me no kiss, and you did not anoint my head with oil. We can invite Jesus into our lives. We can have authentic initial encounter with Jesus and still miss the heart of Jesus. I am saying to you this morning that you can be a Christian. You don't have to doubt your salvation, but you can still be missing his heart. We can invite Jesus to dinner, but give him no water for his feet. We can say yes to him in our mind, but do nothing for him with our hands ever. We can give him no kiss. We can say yes to the apologetic reasons for why Jesus and the worldview of Christianity is the best worldview. Yes and amen to that. But we can still miss the kiss. We can still miss his heart. That reckless, intimate vulnerability in the kiss for Jesus. We can invite him to dinner and not anoint his head with oil. The anointing of oil is a symbol of his kingship in this story. Friends, Jesus, as your occasional therapist, will make you feel better. But Jesus, according to himself, is here to be king. And as king, not therapist, he is intent on delivering you. He's going to deliver you from darkness, deliver you from sin. Can anyone say amen this morning? Okay, good. You're scaring me. Okay. He wants to deliver you from darkness, but because he's king, he's going to deliver you from darkness and to his way and his will. He's going to deliver you from and he's going to deliver you to. The spirit of the Pharisee sees Jesus as a means to an end. The spirit of the woman sees her as her end, her everything. What can Jesus do for me versus what can I do for Jesus because he's my everything? That's the spirits that are in conflict in this story. Okay, Jesus, come into my life. Thanks for your forgiveness. I'll circle back to that when I need it. If I'm honest, I think that is most of our faith experiences. When 9-11 happens, our country will think about praying again. When COVID hits, we'll pause and we'll consider ceding him a bit of control of our lives. When my family is about to fall apart, I'll consider him as the leader of my family. When money's tight, I'll consider asking him for his blessing. And when I feel empty again after that last Netflix binge, I'll consider listening to the still small voice that has been calling me to more. I'll consider it. In 2021, we had our second kiddo. And when we had the second kid, we had to enter into minivan life. Some of you know, it was really hard, not for me, for my wife, to not to be driving a minivan is, tro- is you've, tro- you've totally arrived at, I'm not cool, I'm, I'm a mom. And she, we had to arrive there together. But when you've you got a kid holding your leg, and you've got a kid in the other arm, you've got to push a button and get those doors open, okay? You, some of you are nodding your head, you know. I see you, thank you. <sighs> now, if you've grown up as a kid in America, I think this is all for all of us, um, you know that the crucible of being a child Is sitting in the way back of the minivan, right? When we're on a road trip, or more adults are entering into this vehicle, the kids go further back, right? We don't have much of a system of honor in our culture, but minivan honor culture is real. Um, It's a system of honor based on age and less puke, right? When you're in the back, right? In the back, your windy roads, like the kids are just going to puke. Uh that's why they're in the way back. You just, the adults don't need to go back there. The puke, the kids, they're just there. Leave it alone until we sell the car, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm cleaning it once a year, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Friends, I'm tired of Jesus being in the way back. I'm speaking to me this morning, too. I'm tired of Jesus being in the way back, and I want to say to you this morning, the greatest threat to Christianity in our time is not the culture out there. It is lukewarm faith in God's church right here. The greatest threat to Christianity is not the darkness in the culture out there, the newsfeed thing you get that makes you scared. I'm with you. The greatest threat to Christianity in our time is lukewarmness in here. It's the Pharisee spirit of control. It's using Jesus for his benefits, not giving our lives to him because he is worthy of it all. The chaos of our day is astounding. The evil is truly Sodom and Gomorrah level. I I get it. (sighs) But do not let the darkness out there, do not let Sodom out there distract you from the biggest threat, which is hypocrisy in here. Hypocrisy in the church is the biggest threat to the church. Parents, I'm speaking with authority because I've walked with so many kids and young adults in this space. The worshiper you are Monday through Saturday and the hour before and the hour after church, the worshiper you are Monday through Saturday is the Christianity your kids will either spit out or take fully in. how many coffees I've had with kids who are okay with Jesus, but the hypocrisy they have been modeled that towards them through years of formation as children, I can't even argue with it. I would do the same, but by the grace of God. We have to talk about consumer Christianity this morning. That's what we're talking about. And consumer Christianity, just so we all are on the same page, consumer Christianity is not Biblical Christianity. Consumer Christianity sees Jesus as an addition to our lives. Biblical Christianity sees Jesus as our whole life. Consumer Christianity is preference and convenience driven. It's living in a culture that considers coming to church one time a month, regular church attendance. It's churches that can't talk about money because of other church experiences where money has been misused, but the reality is that not just 10% of your money is the Lord's. If you're in Christ, it's 101%. 101% of your money is his. Mine too. Biblical Christianity is a lifestyle oriented to and around and for Jesus. Jesus. But the beautiful thing about following Jesus is the more of your life you give to him, the more of his life he gives to you. And there's no better way to live. Friends, I think the American church, us in the room, we've had Jesus in the way back of the van for way too long. We've been in the driver's seat and he's getting sick. (laughs) We've been in the driver's seat. Our careers and our comforts have been shotgun. Our devices and our screens and our distractions have been in the middle row. And Jesus has been in the way back, quietly speaking. I'll drive if you need me to, but I won't force you. To return from consumer Christianity to biblical Christianity is to pull over the car Today, get out of the car, open the sliding door, and give him the keys, and not sit shotgun, not sit middle seat. Let's go all the way to the back. Take the keys, Jesus. We will go where you will go. The story in Luke provides us with two responses and two people in the story and then two responses from God. The first response from Jesus towards the Pharisee is rebuke and turning away. The heart of Jesus is not oriented to the spirit of religious control, but the second response sees Jesus' face and heart turns towards. It's the sinful woman. The face of God turns to the spirit of radical love For God. There's so much power in this story. This story has been wrecking me as I've prepared it. But I want to focus on three things we see modeled in the sinful woman today. The first is her posture, the second is her pursuit, and the third is actually her tears. The first thing the woman gets right is her posture. If you read with me in verse 37 again, she, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, wiped his feet with the hair of her head. The Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner, but invites him into his environment on his terms. Jesus, used it here. Jesus, eat this. It's my favorite food. Let's talk about the things I want to talk about. Let's move you in the ways I want to move you. But the woman hears Jesus is near, and she stops what she's doing, and she goes to where he is. And this, this, this parable, this story, speaks to the American church right now. She presents herself wholly to where God is. And I debated doing this. I'm just gonna do it because if I don't do it, I'm actually not being integrous to the text today. But hopefully, you know my heart by now. I'm not trying to be dramatic. Let me just show you what she's gonna do. They're reclining at table. In the Mideast, It means they're likely sitting on the ground. And the table's probably about this high. And the text says, standing behind him at his feet wiped them with the hair of her head. It's not American table. A feet are right here. And her hair is right here. And she's wiping his feet with her hair. Does that make you a little uncomfortable? She lowers herself as a servant. Just like the Roman soldier before her. She is struck by a fear of God. Friends, I think that the church needs to rediscover a healthy fear of God in our time. Do a five-minute Bible study of when people encounter God, they are all falling on their face. It's not charismatic hype. It's encountering the living God. And let me say, I think many of us need to hear this today. The fear of God is not the fear of an abusive father. The fear of God, as we see in this woman, is this this is a supernatural standing before the creator of all life in the room. The one who will come to judge the living and the dead is sitting at this table. The one who will return one day and every knee will bow is sitting here. That is the God eating this meal that this woman sees. Can you imagine being Jesus, getting that invitation from Simon? Hearing Simon say, come to my house, eat my bread. (laughs) The fullness of the Holy Spirit is sitting in his home. The bread of life is eating his bread. The one who spoke the world into existence is coming into his house, (laughs) eating his bread. When I talk about the fear of God, the best way I can describe this is when you're standing at the Oregon coast. (laughs) Anyone stood at the Oregon coast at nighttime with the moon out? It's happened twice in my lifetime. But man, I kind of just say, make that happen, okay? A few things happen in my heart when when I'm in that moment. I am small. My problems are not that big. And my successes aren't that big. There's something healthy that happens where we see more clearly our lives and our smallness when we stand before the Oregon coast. And what's interesting is that smallness brings peace, doesn't it? It rightly orders how we think about life and our issues and our wins, all the stuff. And then you stay in that moment long enough, you get to the point of, wow, what a gift it is to be here at all. Anyone else? Anyone else? That is what the fear of God is. It's not running from an abusive father. It's just a right ordering of man. You are God and I am not. That's all the fear of God is. I believe when the fear of God returns to the church, when it hits us afresh, we will actually begin to live like he's in the room with us Monday through Saturday. When the fear of God grips us, surrender, like the woman, becomes our normal posture to Jesus. When the fear of the Lord comes back to the church, we will gain a new courage with men. The fear of man cannot compete with the fear of God. We'll give him the keys and say, drive. That's what will begin to happen. The second thing she models is her pursuit, reckless abandon for the presence of Jesus. She walks straight into the room. Now typically, pastors have to make some sort of connection from culture to culture because our cultures are so different. But here's some things that are absolutely the same. Um, She is not invited. (laughs) You know what I mean? You throw a dinner party, someone comes who's not invited, Guess what? In our culture, that's also still a little, uh, little much. <laughs> as well as everyone in the room is of a high social status and she is of the lowest. Everyone in the room, the Pharisees in the room, have a reason to think they are better than her. Yet she goes straight into the room because the presence of Jesus is more important than anything else for her. A.W. Tozer says, I want the presence of God himself, or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. The presence of God is our why. If you are a Christian today, the presence of God is the why. The presence of God is why we read scripture, not information deposits. The presence of God is why we pray The presence of God is why we sing. The presence of God is why we do community. The presence of God is why Jesus died. I believe the church in the West, I believe Rice City Church as well, is being invited in this moment of time to make the presence of God our longing and desire. To make his presence our first love once again. Not one of the many things. The first thing. Years ago, Amy and I—this um, is probably five years ago in our marriage. The tricky thing about being a Christian and coming to church every week is that you start to get a real picture of the real thing. If you're if you're paying attention, if you're listening year over year, you start to get a clear picture of who Jesus is. And what the experience of the early church really was. Amen? Right? We realized about five years ago, we were not that. We, you know, and you have those thoughts that begin to circle in your head, and then something begins to happen when you finally give yourself permission to say it out loud. We were in a conversation where I just gave myself permission to say it out loud. Love, I think we're not real Christians not like I was doubting my salvation, but the real thing when you're encountering the real God was not what we were really experiencing. I said, I think we're really nice. (laughs) We're pretty moral. But I don't sense the fire, the power, or the movement of God in my life. And we began after that conversation to get really real with each other. And we began to say, we don't want God. Because to want him would make our lives look different. To really want him. And so we began a prayer five years ago that Jesus has been slowly answering in our lives. We said to him together every day, God, we want to want you. It's a want removed. God, we want to want you. But in that prayer is an honest reaction to, we don't fully want you yet. We want to want you. I began by asking the question to you all. What can reverse irreversible decline? What holds the keys to the reversal? It's this. It's wanting God. The keys to reversal are coming in revival. The keys to reversal are coming in revival. Reversal is revival. Revival only happens when the presence of God comes. Read every book on revival, there's no formula, it's the living God moving when God turns his face towards his people, the answer to irreversible decline is God. The answer to the way out is God. We need God to turn his face to the Western church again. And for, for him to do that, like the woman, we have to turn our face to him first. We have to begin to want him. What turns the face of God to his people? Reversal is in revival. Revival only happens when God moves, and God moves in response to the tears of his people. God moves in response to the tears of his people. I want to reread the past, a, a bit of our passage today. And I'd like to, just even right now, ask the Holy Spirit, bring the spirit of revelation as I read it. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind his feet, Weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Skipping a bit to verse 44, then turning, the face of God is now turning towards the woman. He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Jesus is seeing this woman. And he might be talking to Simon, but he's looking at the woman. This is an awkward social moment. Looking at the woman, talking to Simon, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Not looking at Simon, looking at her. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Now he's talking to her directly. Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say of themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What I'm trying to say to you today is that we need God to do that to us. We need God to turn his face to the Western church right now. There's a few things in this story that just stir and break my heart. The first is this, that the woman is nameless. As I study this passage, um, many people think this woman is actually Mary of Bethany. But there's a lot of debate and divide over that reality. I actually do not think this is Mary of Bethany. I think this is a completely different woman who does not get a name in the story. As well as the woman doesn't even speak. The woman doesn't even speak. Yet, this nameless, voiceless woman captivates the heart of the living God. She is conversing with Jesus through her tears. She doesn't need her name known. He knows her name. She doesn't need to speak with him because he is speaking with her. She is weeping before the weeping God. She is weeping not just from her sin and her need for mercy, which she needs, but she's weeping at the beauty of God before her. My friends, I believe prayers covered in tears are going to precede revival happening in our time. Not emotionalism, not hype, though many will point fingers and say that's what it is. But the spirit of prayer in God's people needs to move to the realm beyond words. Groaning is the biblical term for this. Groaning in our hearts infused with the Holy Spirit who groans with us, saying to God, with our lives, we want more. We want you. If your spirit does not go with us, do not send us. If your presence is not here, we don't want it. We'll stop wasting our time. May the tears of the sinful woman mark our church today. May the tears for God move the heart of God today, for our city, for our children, for our lives. May our kids begin to see our tears as we walk with Jesus, more than encountering the rules we make for Jesus. May we replace our anger and our angst at the darkness of the world out there, and may tears of our own hypocrisy mark us first. Tears for the grace and the mercy we have received from Jesus mark us first. Tears as we cry out, God, bring revival and start with me. May our spiritual hunger for the presence of Jesus, encounter with Jesus, would that mark us and would that move us? Would a youth group fire, a youth group passion return to this church? Would we move from tasting to feasting? Would we come back to a culture that gives God our firsts, not our lasts? May the spirit of prayer begin to overwhelm this community. May we move to the place of groaning in the spirit for the living God. Would we leave today asking God to deliver us from the busy, distracted, hardened hearts so many of us have? I know this feels heavy this morning. But we're in an hour and in a moment where I have nothing but a heavy message for you. We have to wake up. It's not out there, it's in here. Jesus, start with me. What will turn the tide? What can reverse irreversible decline? Nothing except God. It's not what, it's who. We need God to move again. And we need him to start with us and no one else. Holy Spirit, would you come? God, I'm just marked by this the, the sinful woman, this nameless woman, her clear vision the, the log is removed from her eye to see you clearly because she's starting with herself. Holy Spirit, would you come into our church anew? God, I, I repent to you that I am so quick to look at the world out there and shake my head. <laughs> Give us the spiritual strength to look at our own hearts and bring them to you every day. Start with me, Jesus, before you go anywhere else. Spirit of conviction, come. Spirit of freedom, come. God, we want to want you today. We want to want you. We want the real thing, we want you. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us. Would you give us a first love passion once again? Would you see and cut through and deliver us from the things that are holding us back from your presence? Busyness, devices, careerism, consumerism. God, cut it out. Start with me. We are done playing church. We want the living God. We are done playing church. Playing church is an irreversible decline. Playing church is an irreversible decline. And we cannot fix the mess we've made. God, would you soften hearts? Would you bring fresh tears to the body of Christ? Would you bring fresh passion for the body of Christ? And would a looking world see that more than our reasons and our arguments? And would they see something real in us? And would that spark of fire that would move through Gresham and Portland Holy Spirit, start with us. In Jesus' name we pray.